This episode of MBSing is sponsored by Overcast, a better podcast app than whatever you're using right now. Unless it's Overcast. Get Overcast for free on the App Store. Welcome to MBSing. I'm your host, Mary Beth Smith. My guest today is cartoonist, comics artist, biographer, Box Brown. He talks to me about his love of wrestling, where it pertains to Andre the Giant and Andy Kaufman. We get some time to explore that in the 45-ish minute live show that I did at C2E2, Chicago Comics and Entertainment Expo, back in April. You'll notice that episodes have not been released since then, and it's because I took a hiatus and I decided a great time to come back would be the fifth anniversary of the show's birth, the first time that I did the show with a guest, five years of MBSing all natural right here at episode 250. So thank you so much for listening to this one. If you're a first-time listener, Dig back. You've got so many to choose from. Find a guest or a topic you like, and you'll get more of this. Me talking to someone about a thing that they're passionate about, super knowledgeable about, and that's really interesting. It won't always be in front of a live audience, so I thank the live audience at C2E2 for being there. I really enjoyed this conversation with Box. I think both of these figures are really amazing and fascinating to unpack, so I'm glad that he's doing it in such an interesting way in these kind of documentary-style biographical books. And I encourage you strongly to check out Box's books, buy one, and support him and enjoy it. That's all I've got in the way of plugs. Support him. You can follow me on Twitter at the Token Ginger. Huge thanks to the Chicago Podcast Co-op and for Cards Against Humanity for putting together the stage at C2E2 that I got the opportunity to perform on. And subscribe to the show if you like it. If, if you're a first-time listener and you're like, hey, that was nice. This uh, small person has a good time talking to people and I will get more out of it. Subscribe, listen to other episodes, and enjoy this one. Let's get this party started, huh? Cool. Thank you guys so much for coming. My name is Mary Beth Smith. This is my podcast. I don't usually do it live, so it's really fun to have you guys here. Uh, If you're unfamiliar with the show, which is probably a decent amount of you, I interview mostly Chicago personalities in the uh, improv, sketch community, uh, gaming community. I meet a lot of people through Cards Against Humanity who are game makers who I've loved to interview, and uh, along the way, some cartoonists as well and comics artists, much like my guest today, Box Brown. If you're unfamiliar with Box, he is an Ignite's award-winning cartoonist, and he also uh, runs a publisher for comics called Retrofit. He has uh, books 
like Andre the Giant, Life and Legend, which was a New York Times bestseller on the paper graphic novel list. He has Tetris, the games people play, and most recently, this came out in February, is this guy for real, the unbelievable Andy Kaufman. So the gist of MBSing is that when I talk to these uh, creative people, I interview them about something that they're incredibly passionate about, that they really, really love and uh, maybe know a lot about and um, are just really interested in. And it's just a platform to give someone a chance to kind of like spout off about that. Now, as you could hear from um, Box's credits, there is some uh, overlap where Andre the Giant and uh, Andy Kaufman are concerned in that they both have wrestling careers. So that's what we're going to talk about today. So I hope you came prepared for it. Box, thank you so much for doing this with me. Thank you for having me on the show. Can I get a sense of what the origin of your love for wrestling is? Uh, it's kind of weird. Like, um, I, so there was like a big pro wrestling boom, and I was like the perfect age for it, but I missed it. <laughs> like in the, in the 19, 1985 was like this big um, Hulk Hogan rock and wrestling um, cartoon show. And WrestleMania one was like that year, and like the Cindy Lauper thing, and Captain Lou Albano was with with Cindy Lauper and everything, and it was like this big boom. And I like remember kids talking about Hulk Hogan. Like I knew who Hulk Hogan was. Like I definitely like watched the cartoon. I think I was only five, um, but but it, I wasn't into like wrestling. Like my dad wasn't into wrestling. That it, whatever. <clears throat> but uh, a few years later when I was like maybe nine or ten, a uh, uh, new kid moved to town and we became friends and he was like really into pro wrestling. And so this was uh, WrestleMania, right before WrestleMania 6, which WrestleMania 6 was Hulk Hogan versus the Ultimate Warrior. And um, so that was the first pay-per-view I remember watching. I watched it at my friend's house and it like really struck a chord with me. And I like had a real. I remember like having a really good time. Even though Hulk Hogan lost, it was like a uh, like I remember my the friend I was with cried in the bathroom for like ten minutes. Like, oh after, my yeah, gosh! Yeah. yeah, it was like heartbreaking. But I was like amazed by it and like blown away. And then I became like obsessed with it. And then I was like buying all the magazines and like renting VHS tapes from like the the video store or whatever, and like trying to catch up because there was just this big huge thing. Um, and uh, and I was like a huge fan, and I like maintained that fandom even into uh, like this was towards the end of like a boom cycle in pro wrestling. So uh, from like um, 1985 to like 1991 or two, it was like this big wave, and then 93, 94, and 95 was like the worst. Um, I mean, I mean, business-wise, I loved it because it was still like amazing to me. I didn't even notice. I didn't even really know that that was happening. I only found out later. And I wonder, from my perspective, because I'm like just barely younger than you. That's if I had gotten into it when I was like nine or ten. That's when it would have been. Yeah, yeah. So I wonder if like that's yeah. part of why it missed me. Yeah, yeah, probably. I mean, it was like a weird time in wrestling. Um, there was like the steroid scandal. Right. Um, this was a big thing. I actually recently um, have gotten into watching old episodes of Donahue on <laughs> on YouTube. They have a ton of them. Like every one of them. It's amazing. It's really it's like watching a a live like um, comment board under a Yahoo News article or something like that. <laughs> um, 
Because people like stand up and they like just watch 45 minutes of a show, and they stand up and they make a comment that like they either are saying something they already thought before they got there. They didn't <laughs> listen to what the person was saying at all, and they're like mad about it. Um, so I, anyway, so I, I got feel like if you talk to some of the panelists at this con, that's maybe how they would yeah. feel about their experience. Yeah. So I got into watching Donahue, but there's a great Donahue from 1992 about the WWF. Uh, steroid scandal. Um, and they had like multiple scandals at the same time. So there was like the steroid scandal, and then there was also something called the Ring Boy scandal, which was um, a guy making claims that he was um, like sexually harassed. It was it was actually unfounded claims though. Um, and oh, it was good for all and of it, us. It was uh, against a guy that was out, a, a gay guy that was out, and it was the reason he said it, it was because he was gay, and it was like this. Anyway, it was this crazy story. Right. And it, they had that on Donahue and the se and the steroid scandal at the same time. And Vince McMahon was on the show, and he has to like defend himself. Wow. Yeah, it's a, it's amazing. I feel like you can't. There's no like modern equivalent to that. I no, don't think no someone way. would sit down mm -hmm. Vince McMahon and just be like, "Okay, let's talk about everything bad yeah. that goes and on in wrestling." He was like totally 100% on the defensive. Uh, it's crazy. It was this crazy thing, and like Dave Meltzer's in it, which is like if you know wrestling, Dave Meltzer's like this kind of like guru guy. Like he's been following pro wrestling outside the outside the purview of, of Vince McMahon and, and WWE for a long time. So he has like his own history. Not just his own, it's like kind of like a more uh, objective history of pro wrestling. Whereas like WWE has their their own version of sure. history, which is not real. Uh, yeah. to, <laughs> yeah. um, there's a photographer that Andy Kaufman worked with pretty closely. Mm -hmm. It sounds like that's kind of a similar situation where that the photographer kind of saw everything from a little bit of an outside perspective, and he and Andy was kind of able to use that to his advantage in some ways. Uh, yeah, I mean, Andy would do these in in yeah, pro wrestling up until I would say the the late '90s. Um, you were living your character, you know, you had to be that guy 24-7 if you were in public. You know, when Hulk Hogan is, was like walking through the airport and, you know, kids are running up to him, he's ha he has to be Hulk Hogan. He can't be like the regular Terry Bollea guy or whatever. <laughs> um, so, um, so it was like living the gimmick, right? Sure. And then, so this was something. Right. And so this is something that Andy did in his comedy career. And it's also uh, has a lot to do with improv comedy, I think, because like these guys were constantly improvising. Yeah. Um, re reacting to the way, the way people are responding to them in care in a character. Um, so when Andy, even when he was just getting started, he would show up to venue the venues in character already. So it's not like he would go up, you know, go back to the bar, say hello to the bartender, right. say hello to the club manager maybe, something like that, and then get up on stage and be his character. When he showed up, he was carrying in his bongo drums in the foreign man character. And and, and he was saying like, hello, hello. Yeah, yeah. Hello. Was, <laughs> yes, I'm Andy Kaufman. Uh, I am from a small village, you know. Yeah, and that's wild. <laughs> the, and the owner of the club, Bud Friedman, was like, okay, I mean, uh, I guess this guy's going off on stage. They didn't even know. And then, you know, so when, when Andy then, in that same stand-up routine, uh, 
uh, he did a bunch of foreign man characters. Then he did, and then he reveals that uh, uh, he he does a bunch of incompetent re impressions, where he would be like, "I will do an impression of Richard Nixon." Hello, I am Richard Nixon. And so they're really thank incompetent, you. Thank right? You very much. He would do a bunch of those in a row, and he would say, "Thank you, thank thank you very much." And then all of a sudden, he says, "I'm going to do an impression of Elvis Presley." And he turns away from the stage, like tears away his pants, and it's like new pants, and puts on a jacket and brushes his hair for like five minutes, and then does like the most amazing Elvis impression you've ever seen. Impeccable. Yeah, like <laughs> unbelievable. It was Elvis's favorite impressionist. Uh, you know, and then he got out and said, thank you, thank you very much. And so <laughs> the crowd doesn't Brilliant. even know. Yeah, like the crowd doesn't Brilliant even know what comedy. they just saw. Like they, they, they thought that this guy was like totally unable to perform. And he would get up there and be like, if his jokes started bombing, he'd like start crying. Yeah. And people would be, feel bad for him. And like, these are all things like that wrestlers do to manipulate crowds. Like Hulk Hogan, when when in um, on Saturday night's main event, it was actually the main event because it was in prime time. Um, <laughs> uh, when he when he got screwed by the twin referees and lost the title to, to Andre the Giant, and then Andre the Giant sold the belt to the Million Dollar Man. It was a big <laughs> scandal. Um, uh, but after that, in, in an interview, Hulk Hogan was crying because they like took his belt away from him. Oh you know? my god. And this is like drawing sympathy from the crowd. These kids at home are like, oh my god, Hulk, you know? yeah. they took it from him. Yeah, you know? yeah. And, uh, and, and so like, Andy's characters and these and wrestling characters were were very similar even before Andy got into pro wrestling. And how did you specifically? What was your entree into uh, Andy Kaufman's wrestling career? And then we can also cover that where Andre is concerned. Okay, as well. sure. Um, so Andy Kaufman, I found um, in, in like the late '90s on Comedy Central. They started showing Andy Kaufman stuff on TV. Right. But I don't know. I, I mean, I would watch Comedy Central a lot, but like, I think what happened was I was like flipping through the channels, and back when you would flip through channels, <laughs> yeah. you'd flip through and see what was on. Yeah. And all of a sudden, I get to Comedy Central, and there's wrestling on TV. And of course, at that time, I would be like eyes peeled looking for wrestling. Because, gotcha. Like, sometimes you never know. There could be like <laughs> wrestling. wrestling. Yeah. Like sometimes <laughs> some random um, Spanish language channel is like showing wrestling. Luchador. Yeah. <laughs> or like some access channel is showing some local thing. Or sometimes even ESPN would show weird wrestling. Like for me, it was weird because like all we got to see was like WWF or like NWA. But this was like Texas. More local yeah. stuff. Yeah. Or, yeah. And they had a pretty, there was a pretty decent like local wrestling scene in Philly, I would think. Um, well, it's weird because Philly was kind of like a WWE part of the WWE territory at the time. It was a territory right. system. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. It was like, I know that there's... Yeah, so it was really, it was weird. It was like the mob where a bunch of guys got together and were like split up, sliced up the country and were like, okay, you have this to area, you have this area, you have this area, you have this area. And like there was only local TV, you know, there was no national television um, and you were trying to sell tickets to buildings in your local area. 
and like the other guys wouldn't come into your area and you don't go into their area. Um, so that's what it, it really was like. Is like mob yeah, it really <laughs> was. Crazy. It was very mob. I'm sure mob. it just adds more to all the like territorial stories that oh my God. developed over the decade. Well, it was so it was just different the way they did things. Like a guy would come in and work in one area for a year or two and then exhaust all he could do. Like the crowds were, you know, whatever. He had his rise and fall there. Sure. And then he would just leave and go to another territory and do the same thing. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The people in Philly don't know what the Memphis nobody knows. Nobody knows. Yeah. So the guys would come in and be like, "Oh, he was a big heel in Memphis, but but you know, over the last two years, all the guys have beaten him at this point. But nobody even knows he existed in in Minnesota or whatever. Funny that all the storylines just truly write themselves yeah. for that system. It's really oh, smart. It's, it was it was actually kind of amazing because once once the, the guys got to the point where they're being seen on a national level, they have been amazingly seasoned by doing this in front of all different crowds all over the country. It's kind of like what stand-up right. comedy is. Yeah, like, of course. You're yeah, going there's around, definitely a ton yeah, of parallels. Yeah, you're going around to all these cities trying out all this material and sharpening it and getting better in here and there, and then you're exposed, you do it on TV, or you right. do the Car- Johnny Carson, or an HBO special, or whatever it is. Yeah, for sure, and there's there's such similarity to a preciousness about your what your act is. Yeah, because it's Because if it gets out, then... It's developing a character. Uh, there's recently, there was this uh, Gary Shandling documentary on yeah. HBO, and he's talking about how he developed as a comedian and what he wanted to do is be more Gary. <laughs> like he wanted to get be he, he when he would get up there, you know, if he was performing and he felt like he was acting in a way that was not Gary. It was bad. He wanted to be more Gary. Peak Gary. Yeah. <laughs> and so when wrestlers there um when they're developing their character, a lot of times they say it's it's just you turned up. Right. So you're getting in touch with what you are and how you are as a character. Yeah. Um, that also a lot of crossover with improv there. Is yeah. Like so, totally. so much like basic improv teaching is like, if you play close to yourself or at least a heightened version of that, you can get by for right. a, a decent amount. Right. Of and, and you know, like some of the best, the best guys that were great at this were able to roll with any punches. Like if there's a mistake, if a guy flubbed his lines, if he messed up a move, it would happen in the, in the ring as improv too. I mean, sure. Um, not just not just the back and forth, but you're in some ways improving. Okay, um, whatever he was he was supposed to do this move, but he fell out of the ring. So now we gotta right. yeah. we gotta you know keep the story moving. Um, it's very similar. I mean, it's just a lot more working out. I think in wrestling. Yeah. Oh, absolutely yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. If you work out in like stand up or improv, like that's your thing. Yeah, like yeah. you're you're the comedian who's like buff. Yeah. <laughs> um, I feel like there's something interesting to Andre the Giant in all of this as well because he kind of like Hulk transcended just the, yeah. the ring. Right. So he was like a pop culture phenomenon early on, before there, before wrestlers had national fame. Uh, because it was a local uh, local business, territorial business, um, not many guys were well known throughout the country. Um, but Andre was. But he was like yeah, because, huge, so everyone was going to know about it. Well, but it, the reason, the way they booked Andre was that he never, he would never lose. And but he was an, he was an attraction, so you know uh, if you see him every night, 
it kind of lessens sure. the attraction. So, right. so um, instead of doing that with Andre, what they would do is have him come to a territory just for a short amount, two or three weeks, and and do a few matches, and then go to another go to another territory, and he would just go around the country. Whereas, you know, at the time, guys were traveling a lot, but they were traveling just in Texas or something like that, or just in Florida because it's regional. Right. Andre, on the other hand, was going all around the country from place to place and to Japan a couple times a year. Right, because they have, like, a huge... Right. So uh, Andre wrestling. was just as famous in Japan, if not bigger, than That's he was here awesome. as a wrestler. Um, do you remember your the origin of your interest in Andre the Giant? Like, do you remember getting into him as a kid um, I was I was kind of... Andre mysterious as a kid because like when I got into it like Wrestlemania 6 was in a way Andre the Giant's last it, it wasn't his last match but it was it, it was kind of uh, it was his like swan song because he he was a bad guy leading up to all of uh, up to WrestleMania six, and then he had his match, and he was in really bad shape. He really couldn't move around that much, um, so they were going to try to lessen his hit him on screen. Gotcha. And 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 so he turned babyface, turned into a good guy because he turned his back on his heel manager, Bobby the Brain Heenan. And Bobby, uh, he slapped Bobby the Brain a bunch, <laughs> and then and then when he left the ring, he was waving, and he was like a good guy again. Yeah. But he was also like. Semi-retiring, right? Um, and uh, you know, so when I got into this, he was like this kind of old man. He was actually wasn't that old. He was like forty-one. Right. That's what I was thinking as you were yeah. saying that. I was like, how old could he possibly have been? Right. It, yeah. But he kind of looked like my grandpa, <laughs> and and he was like old-looking, and he had like gray in his sideburns and stuff. And he, whenever he had to wear a suit or like not wrestling clothes, he would, his suits were like from the seventies, because <laughs> he probably got like one and right, could exactly. never get another one. Exactly. So like when I was a kid, I was like, why is Andre wearing suits from the seventies? But what it was is that he had to get all his clothes custom made so if it fit he wore it yeah you know whether it was the 70s whatever it was clothes that fit yeah um so like i was if I, the unitard fits right? stretch it over your giant physique <laughs> yeah so but all they would tell you about andre the giant on tv is that he was like this big huge guy and he was undefeated for a long time but they never showed anything except for him getting body slammed by Hulk Hogan. <laughs> so there, it was very like a mysterious thing. Gotcha. So and for then, you, you're, it was just like this, this like mythical yeah, creature. <laughs> it really was. It was like a legend, a legendary thing. Um, and then in the, in the mid to late two thousands, um, you know, it, before the internet, all these guys were like sworn to secrecy. It was like, right. you know, a magician's code. Like you don't tell people how it's done. Yeah. At some point, in like the late 90s, early 2000s, everybody just said, I threw that out the window. And everybody just revealed all the backstories and how this is how we did this, this is why we did this, uh, this is what was going on backstage that day, blah, 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 blah. And uh, so I was like addicted to these things because it was like sure. fascinating. And um, all of them had Andre the Giant stories. And all of them were amazing stories because this is like an incredible guy. But a lot of them also had sad stories about Andre and uh, stories about how he was in pain all the time and how he uh, had trouble moving around. And he was like, really, you know, he was, you don't think of it this way because he's a huge, strong guy, but he was actually like disabled. 
Um, and he had like a lot of inabilities to, to, to use the facilities that we use. Um, you know, he, you know, yeah. two plane, two, two first class plane seats just to fit in the plane. Um, you know, he couldn't use plane bathrooms and things like he that. He just couldn't physically fit into plane yeah. bathrooms. Yeah. They would have to, like, bring him a bucket or something. Yeah, they that did. That is insane. Like, can yeah. you imagine yeah. the, like, lack of privacy? Yeah. Your, like, just a simple hard, lack of privacy trying to have like your that. dignity doing something like that. You Freaking, know? like, ducking behind the stewardess mm. curtain or something. Like, what do you and do? He, he also, I think, had, uh, in a weird way, like, a low self-esteem. Uh, sure. Where he didn't think of himself as like a normal person or as like a a, a a real man or something like that because he was so unable to interact with. I mean, with other even people. like even describing that he toured around so much like that, it sounds like a circus act. Kind of like come yeah. see this huge. Yes, it one hundred percent was that. You yeah, know? It, it was. It was. Um, but the thing that was great about Andre, especially early on in his career, before he he uh, his injuries started to pile up, he was amazingly fit and he was big and strong, but like not fat and like just like this proportional looking huge right. dude, and like a like Donkey Kong, yeah, like, like just a like huge, like, like an actual muscle. real giant that yeah. could really destroy anything. Like, and his hands were so enormous, and like he could just you know he would pick guys up like it was nothing and uh and he was like an amazing guy and he was able to be a good good guy and a good and a, and a good bad guy as a turn he was always a good guy forever but later on in his career he was the bad guy and he was great at that you know um but I, you know and once i did the book i had people all the time uh coming up to me and saying i met andre once oh yes and but a lot of them were like he was kind of a jerk oh, uh, no. because he was like uh, you know he he got tired of dealing with constant attention yeah, can you, he can never like yeah. hide <laughs> yeah even before he was famous he couldn't hide you know as soon right. as he walked into the room it was like eyes on him yeah uh and you know people would come up to him and he would just not speak to them at all and just completely ignore them and he had a sticker on his luggage that said i'm not deaf i'm just ignoring you uh wow yeah um so there was that side of andre too sure um what brought the book about? Was it like, did you get to do it because you're like, you know, I'd like to. You know, I just started Andre. doing it. You know, I just was like, um, uh, I, I, I heard like a third hand version of a story about Andre getting into a fight with Black Jack Mulligan. And it was actually a videotape of uh, Barry Darso, who was Smash in the tag team Demolition, outside behind a wrestling show in the parking lot drinking a beer and telling the story about how Andre the Giant fought Black Jack Mulligan and they and Andre threw him out threw him through the wall right and I was like that's amazing so I just like made that his story into a comic sure um, and then I kept finding other stories like that that's awesome um, so it just kind of it kind of like slowly ballooned. became a compendium yeah and then later after I had pitched it to a publisher, I kind of redid all these stories because I had to go back now and actually fact check them. <laughs> right. And so I got in touch with Blackjack Mulligan and like you Barry Darso's like, story. This definitely yeah. happened. So Barry Darso's story. I know because story. a man drinking a beer said it on a no. video camera. But I had to go back and talk to Blackjack Mulligan. That's amazing. And, and Blackjack told me the story, and it was like it was it was his friend's hotel, and like they really did go flying through the doorway. Jesus. And uh, they wrestled out onto the beach and went flying over a wall and uh, 
landed on their backs. They were both like knocked out, <laughs> like they couldn't move. And and then Andre got up and was like, Blackjack was, like couldn't move. And Andre held him down and he was like, you quit? And he's like, no, I don't quit. You quit. And they still wouldn't quit, you know? Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, so I feel like once you did that, it just kind of became a pattern for what you did with your next couple projects? Yeah, well, uh, yeah. I mean, I, a little I, bit. I, before this, I had done some nonfiction work um, uh, that was like about religion and like all different religions. And, and uh, then I did this Andre book, and I started to really enjoy. Uh, I really am into documentary film, mm -hmm. so my, a lot of my books I think of as documentary films, but they're comics. Um, I honestly, uh, it reads like that. Yeah, like, I mean, it's really, it's a really fun read because uh, I'm a big movie person, and it just feels like I'm reading a movie. Yeah, that's. I see that. I see it as like a a, a documentary film book. Um, and um, so, yeah, from there I did, I ended up doing a book about um, Tetris, the video game Tetris, which has like an insane story of its own. It has nothing to do with pro wrestling. There's like <laughs> yeah. no wrestling in it, unfortunately. But uh, You're wrestling those squares yeah. in either spot. <laughs> but it's still another thing that I was obsessed with as a, as a child, though. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, oh, that's awesome that yeah. you had to carry that through to like, uh, a book, too. Like, um, you know, Tetris, the Game Boy version of Tetris came out when I was nine or something. Yeah. Like we all, we I got a Game Boy, but it was like the family's Game Boy, really, <laughs> because like you know, like my dad, I, you know, I'd be like, Dad, you know, I really want to play Game Boy. He's like, One second, <laughs> you know, and he he's playing it, and then, uh, you know, my 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 Nana played it, and, and she was playing it so much, we got her her own Game Boy That's to play incredible. Tetris, and then even later on, like years later. Uh, my dad owned a Hallmark store, and like I would work there, and we would be working at Hallmark and playing Tetris, <laughs> like when it was slow. Um, and it was just like an obsession. I think like any, you know, you could pick that up Thank at any you. moment and play. Uh, that's awesome. Yeah, it's so ubiquitous. You can just right. And that was one of the most amazing things about it is that, unlike other games that came out at the time, it had it didn't have any kind of storyline or like right. any kind of like cultural things that might make it just a purely American game or like a purely Japanese game or anything like yeah. that. Because it was so simple, it was easily translatable all over the world. So like it 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 went like organically viral. When when right. when the guy Pre -internet Alexei Pajitnov invented it, he um he he was just passing it around on shareware on discs to his friends and stuff. I'm sure no one involved in Cards Against Humanity would know what that's like. Yeah. <laughs> that is absolutely their story as well. Yeah. They, they made a game for their friends, and uh, but they had the, the help of the internet. Right, exactly. So this was pre-internet, pre so it would go... But they say what what it was said is that like within two weeks of him passing this MS DOS version around, that it was on every computer in Moscow. Like oh it spread that gosh. that quickly. Everybody that had it, now listen, there there weren't as many computers. Sure, sure, sure. Back yeah. then. <laughs> so it was like the people that used computers, like. But it was on like 57 computers. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> no, but it was it was a, a hugely a hugely popular thing right away. There's a story about a, a guy who uh, he, he managed a group of software engineers or something like that and he got really into Tetris and he was like everybody play this game you got to try it you got to try it gave it to his whole staff and then like 
two that days like two days later screen, he was basically. like he was like all right give him back give him back because <laughs> like everybody was just playing Tetris and the crazy thing about it is that um, he created it in communist Russia so he had no when he was making it he had no motive no profit motive at all right so it was just completely purely his expression of what he wanted to do yeah. creatively. Um, but then it got it got so popular in Moscow, and it got spread kind of to the Hungarian um, computer community. And in Hungary, it was capitalist, and so they had like a software convention, kind of like what we have here today, and where people were coming in and trying to find games that they can market to other places. Cool. And some guy saw Tetris and was like, "I want oh, that." Oh my game. god! Yeah. And so he tried to negotiate with Alexei in Russia, but like. They were doing it via fax and stuff like that. Oh my God. And so the guy in England thought that he had the rights, and Alexei in Russia thought that they were just talking. And so this guy in, in England released the game, and it was a huge success, like a huge, huge smash success. And then so Nintendo wanted it, and they sent their guy to find out who had the rights. And Oh, and meanwhile, communism had fallen in the midst of all this. So now, like... Just like those trying, lines, baby. Yeah, but the, the blocks, eventually they go away. The government st still claimed ownership uh, of Tetris, so they're trying... Now oh they're my God. trying to sell it to the highest bidder. Oh, my God. While at the same time, kind of finessing the contract they that was written up with this other guy to make sure that they could sell... It was this crazy thing. That's so... Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like... Um, oddly, I, I, you know, I don't know if I could speak to it where Andre the Giant is concerned as well, but I do feel like there are parallels with Andy Kaufman's career because he was so, like, driven by creating a very specific type of comedy and was and never really seemed driven by, like, fame or, or, yeah. or notoriety or anything. Like He, he definitely was, wasn't driven by money, I don't think. Right, yeah, that's probably the right way that's to put sure. it. He, he I think more, he did want to be famous. He wanted yeah. notoriety. But yeah. he wasn't necessary. He didn't like come up with stuff. Like he's kind of like in the same vein of Tetris. Like mm -hmm. Andy was someone who was so into the stuff right. that he was into that he made it into his yeah. act. He wasn't looking looking. All right, what's selling here? What's right. what's popular here? How can I mimic this and that? He was right. like, I'm gonna do this crazy thing, and you're gonna like it, or right? Not, or not like it, and, and like I don't care, whatever. Yeah, that was part of it. Is yeah. like. Uh, a lot of, I mean, especially where his wrestling was concerned, it seemed like a lot of what he was going for was for people to just hate Right, him. so this was a new thing for outside of pro wrestling. But in pro wrestling, there's a whole, half of the performers want you to hate them. Right. Like, that's their goal. It's like, uh, if you ever go to, like, a um, carnival or something like that, and there's the dunk tank, <laughs> the person in the dunk tank, they want you to, like, hate them. Right. So that you'll want to dunk them. Yeah. So that's what a pro wrestling heel is, basically. Like, that's kind of that's where it really came from. That's a really good analogy, yeah. It kind of came from that. Gotcha. So, like, you are out there, like, it, wrestling kind of came from this carnival world. So one of the things they used to do is they'd have, like, a huge guy out there and say, uh, you know, if you can beat me in, in whatever, pro wrestling, uh, you win X amount of dollars. So 
then they'd have every guy would be trying to wrestle this guy. And what would happen is if their wrestler was having any kind of trouble, he just kind of brought the guy behind near where the curtain was, and somebody bashed him over the head with something and knocked the guy out. Jesus. And so the guy never, the, the wrestling guy never lost. Still champion. Right. But his whole goal was to be an a-hole, a you know, right. to get people to want to fight him. So that's what pro wrestling heels are, and they still are technically that today. Right. So that's what Andy was mimicking when he's doing his Tony Clifton character, trying to get the audience right. to hate him, and when he's doing his wrestling women thing and trying to get people to hate him that way. And this was complete, this is, if you can imagine a pro wrestling heel in real society, it, it's ridiculous. Like, you'd yeah. be like, what is your problem? Yeah, you know? especially, uh, you know, again, pre-internet, you don't have any, and pre the wrestling world being much more open, mm -hmm. um, and just kind of like right before that, you have no way of going like, wait a minute, like, I don't know who to believe in this scenario. Right. <laughs> like, and that was a big thing for, that Andy did, right? So it's, a, it's, it's when Andy, Andy used to hang out at uh, Madison Square Garden, which is where WWWF was at the time. And Vince McMahon, who runs the runs the company now. What was the extra W for? Worldwide Wrestling Federation. Oh, so they just W'd both of them? <laughs> yeah, okay. no, at some point. So they, they were get, smart for paring it down. At some point, they were okay, like, yeah, we don't okay, need that yeah. many Ws. <laughs> um, uh, so uh, Andy would hang out there, and he, he really wanted to be uh, to wrestle at Madison Square Garden, or at least do his his act there. Right. Um, but at the Which is... Insane. Right, right. Like, which, He's you know, using his, 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 uh, yeah, fame he was for like, I'm on taxi. taxi. Yeah. I want to perform at Madison Square yes. Garden. Like, and he's and like going right up to the boss and asking him. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, he yeah. didn't like go through their bookers. No, he just no. like literally would walk into the building yeah. and be like, can he, somebody put me up here? Yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. That's crazy. But they, they, you'd think like, oh, this celebrity wants to be in our t thing. It might bring us sell extra tickets or whatever. But the thinking at the time was that, if you bring a celebrity into pro wrestling, it'll make the pro wrestling cheap and feel fake. Because like if the, if the celebrity can do it, then anybody can do it, right? Right. It's not a specialized skill. Um, <laughs> right. And so uh, he ended up going, doing, uh, doing his act in Memphis where they were a little bit looser about these things. And they were like a much smaller territory. And they were like, a celebrity here? Right. Amazing. Yeah, you know? like everybody knows who this guy is. They'll right. come out and see the shows. Right. So they have this whole run in Memphis. And then Andy brings Jerry the King Lawler on David Letterman's show and gets into like a fight with him on David Letterman. And that was the thing, for one thing, that more... Uh, mainstream people saw that than like almost anything because it was like it got a lot of publicity. Yeah, I mean Letterman yeah. in like 1990, yeah, like it was around 1982. Then? Okay, oh and, wow, okay, and, way before and, that. Um, it made wrestling look real as hell. Like right. no, everybody was like, what? Like yeah. they slapped each other. Yeah, like, like Jerry Lawler slaps him on camera. Yeah. And so this was, this was. Um, the, the thinking was that it would make it make wrestling look less real, and it ended up making it look more real. Right. Um, because of the great performances from both Andy and Jerry the King Lawler. I actually think that Jerry's part in all that is one of the most interesting aspects of the whole story. Is that, uh, like you said before, uh, I've come to realize that wrestling is so much improvisation. Mm -hmm. And Jerry went into that knowing that Andy was a really loose cannon mm -hmm. and was just like, okay, I just have to be Jerry Lawler. Like, yeah. I have to be the person that everyone right. knows I am. He has to be 
he has to be and, Jerry and if Lawler. Andy was going to push him to that point, then yeah. he was going to hit right, him. Exactly, Jerry Lawler, Jerry the King Lawler, the character would not would stand not for that. Would not have let that yes. happen in front of him, exactly. even if it was on David Letterman. Yeah, and it's it's interesting too. Like um, later on, Andy became really close friends with uh, Classy Freddie Blassie, who was a pro wrestler and, and wrestling manager. They did a film together called My Breakfast with Blassie. Um, but when Andy died in 1984. Classy Freddie Blassie went to the funeral, and he refused to speak to the press because he couldn't maintain the Classy Freddie Blassie character while he was actually extremely oh. in grief oh over the death of his friend. Wow! So he didn't. He refused to speak to. So him. he just like he, he was just like no. Oh my gosh! Yeah. That that's really cool. Yeah. That's really awesome. Um, are there any stories here that you feel like you'd be remiss not to mention? Like, are there any like super highlights of their either of their like wrestling careers that you think would be fun to share with the crowd? Um, um you know, like Andy's big thing was being on David Letter. David Letterman. Um, Andy owes David Letter, you know, owed him a great deal, you know, because it was very big for his career to be on that. Because Andy would right. be on David Letterman all the time. Right. Later, Letterman was really popular. He had a big audience. And it was still like making comics careers yes, to do totally. one late night appearance. Mm -hmm. Right. And he would be on all the time, and they would interview him, like, which was weird. Like in Carson, when he would have comedians on, he wouldn't really interview them all the time. He would just have them do right. their act. And that was like whether you were in or not, right? right. It, was it was like, like come over to your couch. And it was like, thing. I did it. Yeah. yeah. So right. like, I don't know. I mean, Which Andy, makes all comics feel very comfortable and right. like they deserve everything that they're doing in their careers. Right, but Letterman <laughs> was like more comfortable with comedians and he would let them do kind of whatever. Right. So like, um, in the research for this, and it's mostly about Kaufman's wrestling career, but I just fell in love with Kaufman's performances on Letterman, and they're all on YouTube, and I like recommend you checking them out because some of them are like, like there's this one where he, it's all about changing the expectations of the audiences. So what he does is he comes out, um, and he's wearing like a, a like a, a, yog a yogi outfit, so it's kind of like a diaper, like a giant diaper, and like a big head wrapping. And he comes out, and he looks really silly, and he starts like doing kind of like a funny dance. There's like kind of like crazy music playing, and he's dancing, and he's like rolling his stomach, and like making his pecs move, and it's like kind of silly. But then he goes into like real yoga moves that are like really difficult to do and you're like wow oh like, yeah yeah he's really that's actually you know he's not just a class that's actually impressive. really impressive yeah yeah and then um and then he gets up and he swallows a sword so it's this really weird thing that seems to be his uh bread and butter right was like setting the audience up for something that he then like kind of crushes the payoff yeah. of so he's like so the audience is like okay and he does this whole thing and then all of the music stops, and he's in his, still in the diaper and the headdress thing. And he goes over and he puts on a fake mustache, and he plays an entire Slim Whitman song, like two and a half minutes. And it's like really sincere and beautiful. And it's he's, the more sincerely he sings it, the actually the funnier it is. Because oh, of course, it's, yeah. Because it's, you're contrasting the seriousness and sentimentality of it with 
this really ridiculous picture <laughs> of him in a diaper <laughs> with no shirt on. And a tiny mustache. Yeah, and this little mustache. Uh, and, but it's so, it's funny and also like amazingly heartwarming. <laughs> that um, sounds hilarious. And he would do stuff like, he, he, he loved, he had a really great relationship with his parents and his grandparents. And he. Yeah, he, they were, uh, at least one of his grandmas like was also super into wrestling, right? Yeah, his, he, his grandparents got him into wrestling. Right. And, um, and he had to wear these t-shirts that say, I love grandma. <laughs> and uh, and he, he on Letterman he called his grand he, he had his parents on and uh, he Letterman asks his dad what he thought about the wrestling and his dad is so hilarious and cute he's like well Andy was goading Jerry Lawler but Jerry Lawler used an illegal hold so <laughs> so funny and then. You know, and then he tells, he goes, Mommy and Daddy, I love you. That was it. What a sweet place to end. A couple of the Q&A questions that I remember were, how did Box view Andre the Giant in The Princess Bride? And Box was able to kind of speak to how that researched Andre's career for a bit. Uh, that the role had actually been imagined to be Hulk Hogan, or excuse me, Arnold Schwarzenegger's at some point in the movie's planning process. So that was kind of a baffling thing to kind of mentally wrap one's head around. But that generally it it was probably a good thing for him because it kind of gave him this new way that people were familiar with him and kind of brought him into the mainstream. The other question was similar in that it was, how does Box and uh, how does Andy's family in Box's interactions with them feel about the Jim Carrey movie, uh, Man on the Moon? And this is spoken to really well in the book that Box wrote about Andy Kaufman. He had a conversation with Andy's brother in which he mostly just expressed that he didn't feel like they really captured the the essence of Andy in that he was a really genuine, sweet performer who was always out to uh, be there for his friends and really cared deeply about them. And obviously that's coming from uh, by a source, but I truly believe in reading about him and hearing more about him that uh, everyone knew that Andy really, uh, excuse me, that Jim really nailed Andy in terms of uh, uh, his performances but he didn't necessarily nail who he was as a person. So it's uh, interesting to kind of unpack how certain parts of a person's story are perceived and shown, and it seems like Box has really taken away from his work around Andy that he was someone who put a great amount of value into goal-setting and into achieving those goals for your own joy and for the that of the people around you. He seems like he was a really a community person who ascribed to greatness, and uh, it was a great joy to get to hear more about him and learn so much about him from uh, someone who was passionate enough to write a book about his life. So thank you so much for listening. Uh, I love you, and I mean that. Here's a truck stop instead of St. Peter's Yeah, 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 yeah Mr. Andy Kaufman's gone wrestling 
This has been a Nerdalogs production. If you'd like to help make more things like this, please visit patreon.com slash nerdalogs to donate today. And go to www.nerdalogs.com for more cool stuff. Thanks for being awesome. Thank you all. Thank you all. I am Grabbot23548X.